Anyhow, this morning we're going to study 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 12, 13, and 14. 2 Corinthians 2, 12, 13, and 14. I have, uh, I also have another special treat for us today. I, I was, I went down, I was working on my Sunday school lesson actually yesterday late afternoon and then I realized that it, hadn't copied enough of my uh, commentary, so I had to go back down to the office to go to get the next bunch of verses of the commentary. And when I got there, I realized that on my computer I had a uh, I had digitized a sermon from MacArthur that had, I heard back in '98. That's on the passage that we're talking about. I, it was one of the more powerful sermons I ever heard, and it had a powerful impact on me. And his eloquence that he's describing this is far beyond anything I could come up with. So I, I got a, I got a clip out of that sermon I'm going to play when we get to verse 14, I, and I'll, I'll share a little story that goes with that. Anyhow, we're here to, uh, to study the scriptures together and to pray together, and let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be gathered in your name. And uh, for another Sunday, to open the Word, to seek your face, to encourage one another, and to um, glory in the marvelous grace that you've provided in Christ, and that we might do everything for your glory. And Lord, we do again pray for the dear brothers and sisters that hear this on the Internet, that may be in places where they don't have the fellowship that we enjoy. Lord, we pray for them. and. And send this out to them, asking for your blessing that you might encourage their hearts and souls. For the saints scattered around the world who love you and are lacking fellowship, we pray for them that they might feel a part of this fellowship as well. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this morning we have 2 Corinthians 2. We were just finishing verse 11, and I had a couple of verses left. For talking, he said that it was important to forgive in order that Satan may not um, be taking advantage of us or exploit us or rob us. And then he said, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. <clears throat> and the word schemes there can be translated thoughts, purposes, or reasonings. And we were looking up cross-references when we ran out of time. And I have four more cross-references for that uh, section. Rick, do you want to read one? Sure. Um, uh, Ephesians 6, 11 and 12, and then Robert, 1 Peter 5, 8, and uh, Denise, Revelation 12, 9 through 11, and Linda, Revelation 13, 8. It's a little hot. Okay, first one is uh, Ephesians 6, 11 and 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Okay, so there, that tells us about a spiritual battle. So what we know is that Satan is real. And that he has minions of evil helpers. And we know that his primary 
uh, goal is to lie and to de- deceive. And the one thing that Satan wants to attack most is the gospel and any church or people that are committed to the gospel. Now, in that section that Rick just read, that goes on to describe the armor of God. And there's been some really strange teachings over the years that have been uh, concocted to make this sound like a series of incantations that you have to say to scare away the demons. You know, I've even seen uh, people write books that say, well, now in the morning you have to read all these things. You know, okay, I put on the helmet. I put on, and you say it or do it or whatever. Well, it's totally, oh, there, I saved that for you. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> I'm, sometimes I'm nice, huh? Anyhow, I'm always nice. She didn't used to say that, but <laughs> that's true. <laughs> the, the Lord's gracious work over the years has turned me nice. <laughs> this is my wife, Diane. <laughs> okay. Um, so I was talking about this armor of God, and I, I know in some article somewhere, or maybe radio show, I know we've done this, I, I just can't remember where it went. But in the armor of God, if you read what it is, following those passages that Rick just read, it's all about the gospel. You know, faith, um, uh, the word of God, the gospel of peace, and the helmet of salvation. So the thing that Satan attacks is the gospel. And the way you put on the armor of God is being prepared in the gospel, believing the gospel in faith, and not allowing anything to detract from the gospel is how you do spiritual warfare. Because the, 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 the gospel is how Satan's kingdom is plundered. And he wants to keep as many uh, uh, people in it that he possibly can. And so the attack is always going to be against the gospel. And so if you look at what's going on in the world today, the attacks against the gospel are, are tremendous from outside the church and from inside the church where the gospel is being changed. So that's what spiritual warfare is. Now, 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. All right. Another uh, verse about spiritual warfare. So how would Satan devour us? I I know one of the ways, and I'm going to share a little clip from MacArthur that was uh, instrumental. The Lord used this sermon. I'm only going to play less than half of it to change my life permanently back in 1998. So I want to share a little bit of that with you. But he, he talks about people becoming so discouraged they just want to quit. And I think that Satan will attack us. The way he would devour us is to get us so discouraged that we begin to think it's really not worth it. Why am I going through this? Why why putting out all the effort? What good is there for me that I'm serving the Lord? Or, what, or Especially if you're in ministry. What, why am I doing this? What good is there? And we'll be talking about that in a, in a bit. Then the next passage was Revelation 12, 9 through 11, which is a very, very important passage about spiritual warfare. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceived, deceived the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accuses 
accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Yeah, they overcame the accuser. Okay, so that when, now we get another uh, little insight into what spiritual warfare is about. The accuser of the brethren is uh, wanting to suggest that we're not worthy to be God's people. And he accuses us day and night before God. Now, how do you answer that accusation that you're not worthy to be God's people? Amen. Exactly. Say, no, I would not be worthy other than the blood of Jesus that washes away my sin. And that's how they overcome. Now, again, this is a true, a gospel truth, not an incantation. I, I remember when, in the 70s, when this, it was really a big deal. Now it's back again in different circles only, but the deliverance and spiritual warfare teachings always focused on speaking words to the devil to, or to demons. That, that was, and so you'd see these people casting demons out of somebody. I remember one time walking in on one of these, they, they'd have these altar services in a, after the meeting and, and whenever, and here's these guys got a guy down who's, who's got demons and they're, they're yelling at the demons and they're saying, the blood, the blood, the blood. And, and then the person would go, no, no, anything but the blood. And then they'd think, well, go, it's working. And so they, they would be shouting the blood at these demons. And uh, that's not the point. It, it, it doesn't hurt Satan's eardrums. <laughs> All right? <laughs> it, and he's not, he's not, he's not, the issue isn't that Satan's scared of the word blood or the idea of blood. It's that the blood is what washes away our sin. And, and it appeases God's wrath against our sin. And so Satan's accusations are baseless. Because Jesus, they, they, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony. And what is the testimony? The spirit of, testi- uh, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. So their, their testimony isn't, I'm worthy because I'm such a great person. The, the testimony is the testimony that Jesus Christ died for my sins. That's what we, we speak, and that's how we overcome the accuser. And they love not their lives unto death, and that is... Uh, if you read in Revelation, there's a lot about martyrdom. But the point is, the worst thing Satan can possibly do is kill us. And if he does that, he just sends us to glory. Amen. <laughs> so that's how you overcome the accuser. Okay, the next passage was Revelation 13 and verse 8. All who dwell in the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Yeah, that's about the book of life uh, from the foundation of the world. So it, the reason the whole world is going to be deceived by Antichrist is what it talks about. And the whole world will worship the beast other than those whose names were written in the book of life, which are the ones the Lord's marked. It also talks about the 144,000 uh, Jewish people who are faithful that have the seal of God. And other than that... The end time delusion, which we're already starting to see sort of as a foreshadowing of what it's going to be like during the tribulation, the end time delusion will be so strong, so seductive, and so desirable that not one single person will escape from it other than those who are, whose sins are washed away by the blood of the Lamb who was slain and whose names are in the book. It's the only escape from Satan's delusion. 
Okay? Now, so that was 2 Corinthians 2.11, that no advantage be taken of us by Satan. Then verse 12 and 13, Paul returns to the idea of the uh, sort of a transition to verse 14, okay? And he talks about his travel plans. Again, remember they were thinking he was um, not trustworthy because he said he was going to come to them, but he didn't. So this... I think MacArthur's going to sort of give a rehash of everything that happened between Corinthians and, and Paul. And he does such a good job of it. I won't do I've already gone, given you many rehashes of the history here, but it kind of comes up in this passage. It says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. So here, Paul is, was so troubled. Remember, Titus had gone to visit the Corinthians with and brought this severe letter. And Paul doesn't know whether the Corinthians are going to repent and be restored into good fellowship with him and the Lord, or whether they're going to be recalcitrant and say, no, we won't listen to you, and, and, and turn against him even worse. And, and this was before cell phones. <laughs> Okay, so Paul's hoping to see, I mean, they're doing world travel. He's hoping to see Titus in Troas. So he gets to Troas, there's no Titus, there's no way to find out where he is and when he's going to be anywhere, where are you going to find him? How are you going to get word? You know, it has to just travel by foot, okay, or horseback or ship or whatever, but it had to travel. The word couldn't be trans, any, any letters couldn't be transferred any other way. So, he was there, and there was a. And this this incident may not actually be recounted anywhere in Acts. It, it appears to be yet a third. There was twice in Acts he was in Troas, and the second time there was already a church there. That was where he was preaching when that guy fell off the window, because Paul was so long-winded. <laughs> and the guy fell. See, see, you think my sermons are long? I haven't had anybody fall out of a window yet. And then that was in Troas, and then earlier it mentions Troas when Luke first joined up with them. But this here seems to be different. But whatever the case, the most important thing for Paul is the opportunity for the gospel, and the opportunity was there in Troas. But he was so upset that that Titus wasn't there, and having the burden of his concern for the Corinthians heavily weighing on him, he was so disturbed that he couldn't stay and take advantage of this opportunity for the gospel, and he moved and he went on uh, because he had to try to find Timothy, and so he went on to Macedonia, and uh, in his anxiety, so that tells you just how strongly Paul felt about what was going on. Now, what I'm going to do, it, I, I don't, I hardly, I don't know if I've done this for years, played uh, an audio, so I'm not trying to just get out of being a teacher, okay? Um, uh, let me tell you a little story, and I'm going to play an audio, but there's a story with the audio. In 1998, I was a very, very discouraged pastor. Uh, what happened was we'd been, our church had been shrinking both in numbers and in money starting in 1989. From 89, 90, 91, 92, 93, 94, 95, every year our church shrunk. But I wasn't a senior pastor. And so in 95, I became the senior pastor, and in my foolish pride and youth, I wasn't young, but I still had a lot of youthful zeal, um, and in my stupidity, I was thinking, well, if I get in the pulpit and I'm the senior pastor, then that'll be the end of all this church shrinking, 
and things will turn around. Well, it didn't. <laughs> and, and, and it was good that it didn't because I needed to learn some things. So 96, it shrunk. 97, we shrunk. 98, we shrunk. And, and I was getting letters from people that had been with us for 10 or 20 years saying, we're, not, we're not, no longer going to attend your church and, uh, for very, whatever, all, whatever reason. There's always the, and it would just upset me. It was, it was just killing me. And, and I couldn't think of one thing I could do better or one thing I could do different. And I, and so I was extremely discouraged and sick of the ministry and wishing I was doing something else. And that's when I went to this pastor's conference at Bethlehem Baptist Church. The, pa- the preacher was John MacArthur, and he preached a sermon called Restoring the Disheartened Pastor's Joy. And that sermon had probably more impact on me than any sermon I ever heard in my entire life. And the result was I was no longer depressed. Um, I was no longer despairing. I was no longer upset. Uh, but but I, I had re- renewed vigor in the, in the gospel, and that never went away. And the church kept shrinking, 98, 99, <laughs> 2000, 2001. You know, keep going down, down, down. But I never got depressed again about it. I just kept preaching the gospel because I, after hearing this sermon, my joy wasn't in the apparent success or failure of the ministry in the eyes of people, but it was in the gospel itself. And, and the Lord gave me something that no man can take away from me, which was the joy of proclaiming the gospel in its own right. And so I'm going to play actually about 28 minutes. This, I don't think you'll be disappointed of that kind of out of the middle of that sermon. And I, if somebody wants the whole thing, maybe it's still available uh, through John Piper's ministry. I don't know if they still have it in their catalog because it's from 1998. I got to do a little technology here. For nearly two years, somewhere around 20, 21 months maybe, He labored in that evil city and built deep affection for the believers there. And because he loved them so profoundly, they could hurt him deeply. And they did. One sin or spiritual disaster followed another. The pressure of caring for the church, he says in this epistle, was more difficult than all the physical pain he had suffered cumulatively in his ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 marks that out for us. Anxiety over the Corinthians ate at his soul. They possessed all the gifts, you will remember, but they were divided, disorderly, worldly, chaotic, proud. In fact, conditions in the Corinthian church were so bad that Apollos would not stay there nor return to Corinth, though Paul urged him to do so. Additionally, false teachers had come and invaded the Corinthian church and managed to convince the members of that church that Paul was a fraud and a deceiver, and they succeeded in starting a mutiny against the apostle. They were typical false teachers. They had mixed together Judaism and some of the Judaizing components with a sensitivity to what was relevant to the reigning Gentile philosophy of the city, and they had concocted a kind of syncretistic message that could make them money. That's what false teachers are always after. They knew they couldn't just come into the Corinthian church and begin to teach this. First, they had to dethrone the reigning authority, and so they began an all-out 
character assassination campaign against the Apostle Paul. And they blasted him. They slandered him. As you read through 2 Corinthians, you can assemble the elements of that slander. They said he was in the ministry for money. They said he had a secret life of hidden shame, and if the truth were known, he was wicked underneath the surface. And what he did, he did to gain favors from women. They said he lacked credentials, not having letters from any authority in Jerusalem. They said he lied about his credentials. They said he lied about the successes of his ministry. They said he was a deceiver who didn't speak the truth of God. They even got into the ad hominem arguments and began to assault his person. They said his presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. In other words, he doesn't have the charm. He doesn't have the wherewithal. He doesn't have what it takes to communicate in this sophisticated society. His message is plain. His physical presence is homely and utterly unattractive. And as a speaker, he is contemptible. It's one thing to be ugly and be able to communicate. It's something to be else to be handsome and just stand there, even if you can't. But to be homely and unable to communicate, pretty serious. They were a wicked group of people engaged in the perversion of spiritual gifts, personal jealousies. They winked at incest. They abused their marriages. They ate at demon feasts. They failed to give as they should. They even got confused about the resurrection. They were a mess. And the man that God had given them, who was the hope of restoration, was now on the outs. And the relationship was so bad that when Paul went back for a brief visit, he couldn't even confront the issue. He was so devastated. And he left. Because somebody stood up in the Corinthian church and withstood him to the face and blasted him publicly and none of the people came to his defense. And so he just left with a broken heart. And that's when he wrote back that letter that fits between 1st and 2nd Corinthians called the severe letter that he refers to in chapter 2 that he wrote with tears. And that's why he says, I, I, I wanted to come, but I just didn't have the heart to come because I didn't want to confront this thing and drive you further away. And so he wonders as he begins to write Second Corinthians if there'll ever be a restoration in their relationship, if he'll ever be welcome at Corinth again, if they'll ever have a place in their hearts for him. And on top of all of that, at the time... He happened to be in Ephesus, and things weren't going very well there either. In fact, a riot started that could have taken his life, according to Acts 19. Some also think there are indications in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, chapter 6, that he may have had a serious, even potentially fatal illness. The man was really at rock bottom, and you just feel it all through this epistle. Let me take you on a quick trip. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort. 
Then down in verse 8 he says, We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction. We were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Verse 9, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death. Chapter 2 again, verses 3 and 4, This is the very thing I wrote you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice. And then in verse 4, Out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears. Chapter 4, verse 8, we'll look at it later tomorrow morning, but let me take you to verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. Verse 11, we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. Verse 12, death works in us. Chapter 6, Verse 4, in much endurance, afflictions, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, tumults, labors, sleeplessness, hunger. Further on down, verse 8, dishonor, evil report, regarded as deceivers, unknown, dying, punished, sorrowful, poor, having nothing. Chapter 7. Verse 5, when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. We were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. And verse 6 sums it up, depressed. Depressed. Chapter 11, as I commented earlier, verse 23, labors, imprisonments, beaten, times without number, in danger of death, five times 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, Stoned, three times shipwrecked, and night and day in the deep, in frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, robbers, countrymen, Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, on the sea, among false brethren, labor, hardships, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, often without food, cold, exposure, and on top of it all, the pressure of trying to care for the church. This is really a devastated man. Not hard to understand his grief. Because the one thing in the midst of all of that that you would cling to would be a loyal fellowship, right? That's the last straw. The last straw. In the midst of his concern, he decided to try to find out how things might be remedied. And so he sent that middle letter, that severe letter, with Titus. He said, Titus, you go. You take the letter. You read them the letter, explain my heart, and come back and tell me what their response is. No doubt the letter confronted the false teachers and also confronted the breach in the relationship, and Titus went. Apparently, they were to rendezvous in Troas. Paul left Ephesus, went to Troas, and Titus never came. That's where we pick up the story in chapter 2. And verse 12. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. Let's stop right there for a moment. The first two verses, those two that I read of the text for tonight, establish the discouragement of Paul. How bad is it? So bad that he walked 
in the opposite direction of an open door. Very uncharacteristic. Troas was a seaport city, you remember, on the Aegean Sea in Western Asia Minor, the mouth of the Dardanelles. Been around a long time, founded 300 B.C., 10 miles from ancient Troy. Augustus had made it into a Roman colony, a significant place, a great place for evangelism. His departure there probably was caused by the riots in Ephesus, but he had already planned to go to Macedonia, and no doubt Troas was on the way and perhaps was the rendezvous point for he and Titus. Paul had been there before, according to Acts 16, but didn't found a church. A church is mentioned in Acts 20, so it may have actually started in spite of him on this visit. It says he went there for the gospel. That means to evangelize the city. He had a short visit. He had a great opportunity. It says in verse 12, the door was opened for me in the Lord. It wasn't opened by an advance committee. It was opened by the Lord. Hearts were plowed by the Spirit of God. It wasn't just favorable from a human viewpoint. It was a calling from God, and he turned his back on it. Verse 13, I had no rest for my spirit. That's exactly what he said in chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. He had conflicts without, fears within, and he was flatly depressed. Why? Because of what the church had done to him. He was human. Would they love him again? Would they listen to him? It wasn't an ego thing with him. He knew he had the truth. And they had turned away from him and thus the truth. And it was love for them, not a desire for his own satisfaction that drove him to this depression. Would they repent? Would they deal with the false teachers? Would they deal with the divisions, the incest, the quarrels, the confusion regarding marriage and divorce, the issue of idols? Would they clean up the Lord's table? Would they get rid of the sexual sin? Would they discipline the man who, who face-to-face cursed Paul? Would they confront the false apostles? Would they restore their relationship with the man that God had ordained to bring them the truth? And he was so pained over this that when Titus didn't show up, he just left in the opposite direction from the open door, took off from Macedonia, perhaps hoping to intersect with Titus on the road he would be traveling to meet Paul. This is a dangerous hour for the preacher. His heart is in danger of rebellion when he reaches this kind of discouragement, when the church has broken his heart. He's in danger of making an unwise decision. He's in danger of turning his back on a wide-open door because he doesn't feel like it. He's in danger of a restless spirit, and he loses his heart for the work God has given him. And he begins to get a feverish desire to go somewhere else. And there comes a sense of drudgery in the current ministry. And the gold is at the end of the rainbow, and the grass is greener on the other side. And here is only the steady plodding of a humdrum ministry. And the temptation comes maybe to even give up the ministry and sell insurance. At such a time, he's oversensitive, imagines all kinds of slights, thinks everybody's after him, takes every comment made as a barb 
and usually his wife elevates his anxiety by telling him he doesn't deserve to be treated like this ten times a day. The real problems of the ministry are magnified out of proportion to reality. And his ministry is in jeopardy. He's in danger of becoming bitter toward the church. He's in danger of becoming jealous of other ministers. And he will drift. Well, Paul was somewhere around there. And maybe you've been there too. And time spent nourishing a broken heart is time lost for eternity, isn't it? How does Paul deal with this? How does he handle this? Well, I want you to know how fast he handles it. Look at verse 14. How does it start? But what? What? Thanks be to God. He's in the dark side in verses 12 and 13, but it doesn't take very long to get on the other side. Discouraged, but not defeated. It sounds like the language of chapter 4. Afflicted, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Or as Phillips translated it, knocked down, but not knocked out. And as we come into this wonderful section from verses 14 to 17, we see how Paul brought encouragement to his broken heart. In the midst of his doubt, in the midst of his fears, in the midst of his depression and discouragement, he writes, but thanks be to God. And the question immediately comes, for what? Why? What's in the space there between verse 13 and 14? All I see is white space. What happened? You say, well, if you follow the history, Titus arrived. But that's not the issue here, and Paul doesn't bring that up. Well, if you follow the history, Titus arrived, and Titus brought a good report that the people had responded well to his visit and well to Paul's severe letter, and they were on the way to making a restitution of the relationship, and the news was good. But that's not the point here. He doesn't get to that for a while. Something else captivates his heart and turns the disheartened pastor into a joyful servant of God. What is it? Let's read. Thanks be to God. And this will tell you once and for all that he was a Calvinist. Who always leads us in his triumph in Christ. I told you. And manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God. But as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. And there's a buoyancy there, and there's a passion there, and there's an intensity there, and there's a zeal there, and there's an exuberance there that makes you think there is some monumental thing that has occurred between verse 13 and 14. And it has. You know what it is? It's all a question of what you decide to concentrate on, to focus on. Now, let's grab one word out of that. In verse 14, you notice the word triumph? 
You might just think that's a synonym for victory, and of course it is, but it's more than that. If you do a little study of commentaries and resource material on 2 Corinthians, you will find out that the word triumph describes a technical event, a Roman triumph. Now, a Roman triumph was a very notable event that perhaps only occurred once in the lifetime of a Roman citizen. Only once in a lifetime might you see an actual Roman triumph. This basically was a way in which the emperor or the Caesar honored a general by giving him a triumph. He would be recognized as a great general who had accomplished great conquering victories and be given by his emperor a triumph. Now, before he could win this triumph, here are the conditions he had to satisfy. He had to have been the actual commander-in-chief commander in the field engaged in the battle. The campaign must have been completely finished, the region pacified, and the victorious troops brought home. At least 5,000 of the enemy must have fallen in one engagement. A positive extension of the territory of the Roman Empire had to have been gained and not merely a disaster retrieved or an attack repelled or a civil insurrection put down. In an actual triumph, those things had to have occurred. The classic general who received such a triumph was Titus Vespasian after the devastation of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., which fit all that criteria. But it was rare for the Roman citizens to actually see such a triumph take place in the city of Rome because such conditions were not frequently met. According to historians, when the triumph was given to this great general, it was pomp and circumstance without equal. The procession of the victorious general marched through the streets of Rome to the capital. And here's how the procession came. First, there came the state officials and the Senate. You would expect, right? The politicians want to take the credit for everything, so they're out in front. Then came the trumpeters, and their function was to blow and announce the various people who were coming along behind, to call the attention of the city to gather for the parade. Then came spoils taken from the conquered land on carts and wagons. For example, when Titus conquered Jerusalem, he, he had his triumph in Rome, and he came down toward the emperor's throne to make the sacrifice of the white bull to the god of war, carrying in carts the seven-lamp the seven candlestick from the temple. He also had the golden table of showbread and he had ripped the trumpet-shaped receptacles where the offerings were put on the walls of the temple, and he had those as well. Then there came pictures of the conquered land that had been painted by artists so that the people could see what the land looked like. There was no CNN, obviously. Then came models of the citadels that had been knocked out and the walls that had been conquered and climbed and scaled. And then came pictures, if that was the case, of ships that had been vanquished at sea. Then came the white bull, which was to be made sacrifice. Then came the captives, the wretched captives, the enemy princes and leaders and generals in chains, shortly to be flung into prison and then to be executed. And then came the lictors with their whips and rods. Then came the musicians with their stringed instruments. Then came the priests swinging censers with incense and fragrance went everywhere. And then came the general. 
and he stood in a glorious chariot drawn by four horses clad in a purple tunic embroidered with gold palm leaves and over it a purple toga marked out with golden stars. And he held in his hand an ivory scepter with a Roman eagle on it. And over his head a slave held the crown of Jupiter. And behind him came his family. And, and then behind the general came the army. And they were all shouting, Triumph, 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 Triumph. The people were lining the streets and throwing flowers, garlands of flowers under the feet of this entourage and trampling it. The fragrance of the flowers was mingled with the fragrance of the incense to make an incredibly memorable moment. That's what Paul meant when he said triumph. That's what he saw. Look at it again in verse 14. Thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ. You know what got Paul back on track? Just this recognition. He could give thanks for the privilege of being in the triumph. That was enough. Forget the successes. Forget the failures. Forget the wounds. Forget the losses. Forget the pain and the suffering and the discouragement. It's enough to just be in the parade. It's enough, gentlemen, just to wear the uniform, just to march behind the conqueror, just to be there when God calls all the troops in for the glorious triumph. That's enough. It's enough to know that He always leads us, that God has not abdicated His throne, that He is the sovereign Lord, and He is leading this whole thing to its ultimate glory and an eternal tribute to the great general, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll be there. We'll be there in the parade, following the great commander of all commanders. It's enough. It's enough to bear his name. It's enough to wear his uniform. It's enough to have served in his cause. You say, well, my church is pretty small. It's enough. Somebody said that to Spurgeon. He said, maybe it's as large as you'd like to give account for in the Day of Judgment. Well, I, I, they don't treat me the way I deserve it. Well, you should thank God every day you live that you're not treated the way you deserve to be treated. <laughs> if one soul comes to the knowledge of the Savior through your entire life, it's grace that God would ever use you for that purpose. Paul had this perspective, articulated it well to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1. I thank Christ Jesus, verse 12, our Lord, who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into ministry or service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am what? Chief, foremost. And yet, I found mercy. No wonder, he says, now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's enough. What kind of expectations do you have? It's just enough to wear the uniform, folks. I read the end of the book, We Win. Right? He wins. We're in the parade. We'll be there in the triumph. 
It's enough to have the privilege of marching behind the great commander. It's enough to be more than conqueror. It's enough, inconceivable, to be seated with him on his throne. How about that? It's enough to be a fellow heir of all that God gives to his son. And so we follow the conquering hero in the victory parade, not as captives, not as prisoners headed to judgment, but as co-conquerors in the great triumph over sin and death and hell. Triumphant soldiers, we bring the spoils of war, the souls of men and women led out of Satan's kingdom into the kingdom of God and Christ. And whatever small part we may play, that is enough. I go back time and time again to Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The gates of Hades is a Jewish euphemism for death. If Hades is where the dead go, the gate's how you get there. So death itself, Satan's greatest weapon, according to Hebrews 2, cannot withstand the purposes of God. So we don't have to win every little struggle. I don't have to win every little struggle. I don't have to win every little skirmish. In the end, it's enough to know we will be triumphant in Christ according to God's eternal purpose. Now, there's something else here that's absolutely overwhelming. The first thing that brings him back from discouragement is the privilege of being in the triumph with Christ. The second thing is the privilege of influencing for Christ. Look at this. Verse 14. He not only leads us in the triumph in Christ, but manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one an aroma from death to death to the other an aroma from life to life. Now he's picking up on this imagery again, which was full of smells. The, the whole triumph with the horses and the incense and the flowers and, and all of that had, had a fragrance, if you will, an aroma. And he borrows from that. And, and what he is saying here is, what encourages me in the midst of my discouragement is, first of all, that I am participating in the triumph, and secondly, that my life has influence. Of the knowledge of Him in every place. The key thought here is that God in inscrutable condescending grace and kindness has let us manifest that aroma. The sweet aroma of Jesus in every place. Alright, so the reason I wanted to share that with you is that I, uh, I think there isn't a single Christian who doesn't get discouraged and decide it's not worth it. Alright? And the reason that uh, had such an impact on me is after I was I went into that meeting so discouraged I was sick of being in the ministry, and after I heard what Paul went through, I thought, what a mealy mouth coward I am! What am I complaining about? I've been beaten with rods and shipwrecked and all this kind of stuff. I was just discouraged because I didn't think my ministry was being effective enough. 
But when I heard this um, exposition, and what a what a eloquent exposition of Second Corinthians two and verse fourteen is, I couldn't reproduce that if I studied for a week. Um, but nevertheless, uh, it's true not just for a pastor, but for any Christian. If you're a father or mother or uh, in, in churches or families, or, there's always discouragement, and it always feels like. People don't appreciate me. All this work is not paying off and, and uh, so on and so forth. And so the truth is that if we were able to just see the great privilege it is to even participate in this triumphal procession with Jesus Christ, it would be worth it all. And so I hope that brings encouragement to you. Um, you still have the mic. Does anybody want to comment or discuss that before we... Talk more about it? Yes. Like Jesus said of John the Baptist, what did you expect? A reed blowing in the wind? He said, make straight the way of the Lord. Well, Moses didn't speak to the rock, and he uh, disobeyed the Lord, couldn't go on the promised land. Out of us come living water. We get to walk before the Lord and give the gospel. When it says we war, notice what it says, we war not against what? Flesh and blood. We war. When you get ready for war, I tell Christians, you see, we go out and we get saved, but we don't expect we're going to get any warfare. we got to get armed and get ready. It's war. It's your own family. It could be your wife, your children, right away. That was the acid test. They prepared me. It says, go out and then get saved. You tell them the gospel and you disciple them. How are you going to disciple them? In the winter circle? Or are you going to disciple them that your family in the acid test may come against your brothers and sisters in the Lord? But it's a love affair. When you're in love with God, you don't think about these other things because... That's the warfare. I knew why. I was going to hell. One of the enthusiasms that I got is I know I was going to hell. I went up that cycle and I was going to hell. I never was so terrified in my life. And God saved my soul. And I get to go to heaven. If I was terrified of hell, why shouldn't I be enthused about God and heaven? Uh, your story, Dan, was you were on a motorcycle, yeah, right? And I flew up and I was going to hell. Forty times. Weren't you? Weren't you going? My head. Yeah, weren't you going under a semi? Yes, this wheel was coming. My life yeah. went before me, and God said in an inaudible voice, "Where is your friends now? Who can help you now?" And just before that tire come over my head, missed me by an inch. Remember, my head blew up like a watermelon. I couldn't see for days. But before that, I cried out to Jesus. Then Jesus saved my height. Ten years later, with like winter's circle, every imaginable thing, then he saved my soul. But he had, he saved my height, and he put me through this so I could see what's going on out there, so that my complete allegiance, like in a soldier, is to the Lord. I love the Lord, he loves me. All right. Yeah. All right, that's Dan's story. All right. We're, we're glad he saved you, Dan, both your height and your soul. And that's what he's done for all of us. Yeah, amen. Okay. After that, this is a simple comment. Um, hey, Dan. The uh, speech or the talk that MacArthur gave, I think you might comment that that's special for that day. That's not a canned thing that he brings around. He prepared that specifically for you pastors. It, that, yeah, I was thinking about that because I hadn't listened. I've listened to this about four or five times, but I hadn't maybe for five years. Um, the thing that was remarkable, there's a guy that's writing books, doing radio, and preaching his sermons, that was special for those pastors, and he'd spent how many hours to get that ready? Amen. And one of the pastors got up and, and thanked him and, uh, when they had a question and answer. One pastor got up, and there, there was like 900 pastors at this thing. And a pastor got up and says, thank you that you put that much effort in this for us. This wasn't just some off-the-cuff thing. It was uh, amazingly prepared. 
Um, and that uh, being there at that moment was what I needed to keep going into ministry. And as I said, I've never, ever, I mean, I've had discouraging things happen, but I've never gotten to the point where I felt like it's not worth it or anything like that again after I heard the sermon. Because all I have to do is think back to the triumphal procession and then say, what am I complaining about? <laughs> you know, what am I, what is really so bad? And I think that any Christian can gain the same encouragement from the passage. So that's Second Corinthians uh, 2 and verse 14. Now, I, I, the interesting thing is after I heard this, I went and did a bunch of study on it, and that's not the only way to interpret this passage, by the way. There's two different ways this passage is interpreted, and MacArthur's interpreting it that we're soldiers with Christ and he's the general. But another way that some interpret the passage is that we're actually the, the people who've been conquered and we're the slaves. Okay? Yeah, we're the ones being brought to be slaves. And because that would fit in the analogy as well, because we're slaves of, and uh, we're not our own and we're just servants, and so we've been... We're, and so, after I heard this one, I'm going to go with this. So. <laughs> I think, I think it, it works. <laughs> so, any other questions about the passage? Uh, Sam. The word has gotten out here from the pulpit, and, but it also has gotten out, and that's why uh, the growth that I've personally seen in this congregation has been since about three, four years ago when I first came here, and it's been growing steadily, uh, not huge numbers, but steadily because of the word. So the word has gotten out, uh, both from the pulpit and, you know, from the fact that you are preaching the word. Thank you. Well, thank you. You know, <laughs> I, just looking at providence, providence is history unfolding. As I look at it now, providentially, the reason, the good reason why I went through all those years where it was hard and shrinking was that the more that happened, the more gospel-centric we became. You know, by making it so that I had nothing but the gospel, um, that, that just became indelibly a part of, of our ministry at Twin City Fellowship and of my passion as a pastor for the gospel because that's what we have. That's what we, in the, at the end of the day, we have the gospel. And we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so, having gone through that experience, I, I'm pretty trusting in the Lord that He's going to keep us gospel-centric. Because that's a lesson to learn. Um, not thinking there's some big plan out there for church growth or some success formula or try this or do that. No, just preach the gospel. And, and uh, Spurgeon's right. How many people do you want to be accountable for on the day of judgment? <laughs> we'll, we'll let the Lord decide that. <laughs> okay, so um, the, the sermon's going to be on Exodus chapter 4, and I think it'll almost fit with what we were talking about, because it's Moses getting discouraged and not wanting to do his ministry, and uh, the Lord prevails and Moses does his ministry in spite of Moses. So.